course, again. Every hour. On the hour. Coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. Listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brook the Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be taking a look at current events in the world of science and technology. Also joining us are Berkeley Robot Builders, who will be on the television program Robot Rivals. In addition, you can find out what gives firecrackers their spark. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. to Berkeley Grocks on Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. Leaving me as Brian Gerke. So how's everyone doing? Too yeah. bad, not too bad. Yeah. yeah, getting on toward the end of the semester here on campus. <laughs> Rare, but anyway. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what's going on in the exciting world of science? Okay, so uh, one of the mysteries of evolution of the Earth may have been solved. And what is that mystery, Frank? How do they reduce nitrogen in the air so that it gets into your uh, biological systems? That's been weighing on my mind for, like, years. Yeah. I've, I've stayed up nights wondering that. <laughs> Just getting your nitrogen, huh? Yeah. Just getting your fix. So the way um, they think they could be fixing it is possibly through hydrogen disulfide and iron sulfide. Okay, and how is this done then? Suppose it's a chemical process. Biological. So if you just buy the uh, iron sulfide off the shelf, it's not going to happen. Apparently, it, you need like special microstructures of, of that uh, compound to actually have this catalytic effect. But what they've shown is they identify the enzymes in bacteria that fix nitrogen. And what they found is that there are clusters of iron sulfur and iron sulfur molybdenum in there. And they believe that's the centers where they catalyze these fixating conditions. Oh, I see. So it's some kind of special enzyme protein in the bacteria that's doing all the work. Right. And you need these specific sites to uh, reduce the nitrogen into ammonia. I see. I the, see. the usable form for biological systems. Mm-hmm. So what some scientists did, uh, led by Dorr, is that they got some nitrogen and hydrogen sulfide, and they converted to ammonia. It was very low yields, but the proof of concept shows that either hydrogen sulfide or iron sulfide is possible to catalyze it before any of the bacteria is actually formed on the Earth. I see. So... Uh, Ah, so but, that so that this is sort of a sort of the answer to a chicken or the egg problem. Right. How did yes. the bacteria get there if there was no nitrogen right. being right. fixed from the atmosphere into the soil? So I it could be done uh, inorganically, I guess. I oh. see, I see. But I imagine it's a much slower process. Yeah, it's very very slow. Right. I mean, they only have like a 0.1 percent yield. Wow. But all you need is a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the recent edition of Ankyvon Kemi, the international edition, uh, volume 42. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha,
So do you like your vodka martinis shaken or stirred? Uh, shaken. Uh, I prefer them agitated with bubbles. Agitated with bubbles is always good. Uh, circular. I like, like sonicated. Sonic. <laughs> so, sonoluminescent. Luminescence. Luminescent. Yeah, if anything. Uh, how about with a little water in it? With a little water. Water into water? Well, it turns out that uh, a group of researchers have found out a novel way of making uh, different types of particles separate in a uh, colloidal suspension. You mean separating based on their size? or? Well, no, it's actually based on affinity for water. Interesting. Yeah, so it turns out that people have known for quite some time that you can separate different grain particles based on their size. Right. What's called the Brazil nut effect, uh-huh. which is uh, why the Brazil nuts always end up on top of the smaller almonds and the can mm-hmm. of peanuts. So that's one way of separating out different particles. But another way is apparently based on this uh, hydrophobicity effect. Oh, so the surface effect based because of their size. Well, essentially what research found is if different types of particles have different affinities for water, mm-hmm. in some way this macroscopically separates out the particles which have a greater affinity for the water than the ones that don't. Right. So it's like a one-stage chromatography without even going it, through a it, column. It apparently <laughs> is. You just dump the water in there and they just separate based on their affinity there. Cool. So the upshot is if there's too much vermouth in your martini, <laughs> add a little water. Add a little water again. and you're fine. Okay. Anyway, so this is a, a big thing because they think we can use this in all kinds of manufacturing processes where we need to separate out. So if people want to find out more about this, take a look in physical review letters and the authors of the article are Lee and McCarthy. How do you guys feel about vibrations? Oh, vibrations. They're good. Good Good vibrations. vibrations. It turns out that uh, you may get some warning before the next major vibrations come through the area. You mean earthquakes? I mean earthquakes, yeah. Wow. So it turns out that earthquakes produce two different kinds of waves. Primary Mm -hmm. waves called P waves and secondary waves called S waves. And it's the secondary waves that actually cause all the the major earth shaking. And Uh they move about half as fast as the P waves. And so if you can detect the P waves coming in, then you can give people, you know, 10 or 20 seconds warning, oh. enough time to take cover before and jump out the window, it right? actually hits. Yeah, and, and also <laughs> jump out the window. Uh, so this is actually being tested now, starting up soon in Southern California, an early warning system that they're going to try to put into place down in Southern California to mm-hmm. see if they can find the P waves and indicate when this is going to happen. This, of course, will give warning for even minor earthquakes, because oh. as they say, you can't really have a warning system that only goes off once every 30 years and nobody right. will pay any attention to it. Right. Uh, so this has been put together by... Richard Allen of the University of Wisconsin and Hiro Kanamori of the California Institute of Technology, otherwise known as Caltech. And the system is called ELARM-S, ELARMS, and it's been described in the latest Journal of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, Berkeley robot builder's Eric Park... Bharat Muthaswamy and Daniel Lerbaum will join us to discuss their upcoming appearance on the television show Robot Rivals. So stay tuned.
Alright, welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're very happy today in the studio to have a number of competitors for the upcoming Robot Rival Series, which will be on uh, the DIY Network. It's a team here from UC Berkeley, and they'll be competing in the May 9th episode that will be airing uh, this week. We have Eric Park, who is the team captain of Team Berkeley, uh, Bharat Muthswamy, and Daniel Lerbaum. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Our pleasure. Well, geez, so this sounds like a, a really fascinating competition you guys are in, the Robot Rivals. I'll start with Eric. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about what this program is about and how you guys got involved with it? So Robot Rivals is a robotics competition where uh, different universities go head-to-head to compete against each other for a variety of different robotic objectives, and the objective changes with, with each competition. Oh, I see, I see. So do you have to build some kind of robot for this competition to do some sort of task, is that right? Right, exactly. What, what kind of task did you guys have to do in this uh, so for the episode that's airing May 9th, we did a toy collection robot. A toy collection robot. What, what did you have to do there? Um, so we have to build a robot that will go around, collect toys off the ground, and then lift them up and insert them into a toy bin. So, so did they did they give you the the materials beforehand, or before you went to the competition, or did you have to do it right there at the at the site? They gave us a pretty extensive list uh, beforehand of what sorts of um, materials we would have available to us, so that we could prep ourselves on on what we might be able to use. There were more things there than were on the list, and we kind of had to adapt. In addition, the show adds an element where, for every episode, they give you a collection of objects that, if integrated into your robot, it'll give you an advantage, be it time or be a point to your uh, final competition at the end of the day. I, I see. So it was some sort of bonus point devices if you implemented in your robot. They called it the household item, and um, it, it would be things like a bucket or um, just things that you might find around the house. Could have been like a toaster. Yeah, and the interesting and thing is, like, if the more items you use, like, the more points you get for your robot. So you're better off using as many items as they give you to build the robot. So this was a uh, head-to-head competition against University of Tennessee. University of Tennessee. So what were the constraints of the competition? Was it like timed, as many toys as you could pick up during that period? It was kind of both. You had a time frame in which you had to pick up X number of toys, and obviously the toys were way given weights by how difficult they were to pick up by a robot. Like sometimes, some toys were much more hard to pick up, so they carried more points. We want people to certainly tune in uh, for the May 9th episode, but can you give us some sort of clues to like what kind of tactic you guys picked for trying to pick up these toys, what sort of uh, design you guys were thinking about? We can't talk really about our design, uh, but we can say that going into it, what we wanted to do was come up with something that you know was very well designed, kind of the Berkeley philosophy, you know, design first. So we spent as much time carefully designing it as we could and then um, you know the building we had to speed along a little bit and obviously that was complicated by the household items uh, a lot of the design kind of goes uh, in a different direction than you might expect when you're trying to integrate you know a bucket or a toaster <laughs> I, I can imagine I can imagine uh, so, so were they filming you all this time when they were uh, while you were designing the stuff and building it and everything as well yeah they, they would take breaks once in a while but for the most part we were on camera for a good chunk of the time and yeah. mic'd all day also which is something that uh, is a little unnerving you have to pay attention to what you say at every moment yeah and we found out that being on camera is, is a pretty difficult thing I mean like I, I don't think I'll make fun of those actors anymore for like screwing up in front of camera so let's see. So why did why did you guys become interested in uh, in robotics? I started in robotics in seventh grade when my uh, middle school woodshop teacher told me about the tech challenge in uh, San Jose, 
and uh, I've been doing robotics ever since. I started a team at my high school with a couple of my friends, and we competed in uh, in first robotics, the national robotics competition. That's why I ran into Daniel, and then then I did Robot Rivals once I got to college. So, or how'd you hear about the Robot Rivals? And um, Robot Rivals, I heard about through my, my mechatronics professor, Professor Ron Fearing. I, I took his EE192, the mechatronics design lab course, uh, the semester before. I found it to be very rewarding. Um, I got interested in robotics. Well, you know, I've always um, had a lot of trouble with things that I don't understand. I I just, I can't stand not understanding things. And so, you know, I would always take things apart. And, and also, you know, it, it's always seemed like, you know, you should be independent. You should be able to fix things. And so I like to play around with things and fix things. And it just, you know, everything mechanically is fascinating to me. And I uh, got really interested in basically how everything works. Yeah, but ever since I was a little kid, I was interested in electronics. Like, I picked up art radios when I was in, like, third grade or fourth grade. I didn't put them back together, but I actually wanted to be a doctor. But then in, I think, around eighth or ninth grade, I saw Star Wars, and that's it. I got hooked up on R2 and C3. So from then on, I, yeah, I wanted to do robotics, and that's what I'm doing in grad school here. So is that all your visions for the future of robotics, seeing like something like an RT or C3 humanoid conquer yeah, the world like T2 or something? <laughs> I don't know about conquering the world. I mean, but if you look at the latest, some of the latest robots like the Sony Ibo or the Honda humanoid walking robot, yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. And like robotics has, it has improved by leaps and bounds in the last like five years, especially with kits like uh, Lego Mindstorms bringing robotics more towards the public. So uh, I guess what is uh, all of your vision for for the future of robotics and where do you see robotics being in, say, 10 or 15 years? Um, I believe that robots should be a technology to enable people to make their lives easier and to be able to do things where you would not be able to send a human or where it would be too dangerous. So in the future, I'd see more of that and it'd be more mainstream. But as like Barat said with the Lego Mindstorms, it'd be more pervasive and people would know more about it. I think actually all three of us probably have a pretty different vision. Um, I know, you know, my focus is obviously different than, you know, Eric or Bart brought. Um, I see robotics as a huge uh, way to do things that humans are unable to do or assist humans, you know, in, in terms of, you know, prosthetics or uh, maybe give people the ability to use an arm that they don't have, things that would uh, make somebody's life livable more than just easier. I mean, those all sound like, I guess, uh, very ideal visions for the future of robotics. So, so where are you guys uh, headed after this? Uh, if you beat the University of Tennessee, who, who will you be competing against? That's kind of an un- yeah. unknown at, no. at the yeah. moment. It, it needs to be determined by the, you know, the winners of the other matches. It's a tournament structure, just like uh, you, know, you might expect. We can't tell you who won, but I promise you, if you watch the May 9 show, you will not be disappointed. So don't forget to tune in to the DIY Network. I, yeah, I certainly hope all of our, our listeners will do that. So any plans for any other uh, competitions for y'all? Yeah, hopefully, like, uh, next year if this thing comes again, like, we'd be happy if they, uh, like, ask us, like, to go again. Yeah, we'd be happy to, more than happy to go again. But I also feel that since you mentioned it, like, I would like to take this opportunity to point out that I think the Berkeley engineering, de- well, I can speak only for the electrical engineering department, we should get involved in more activities like this. Like, we should stop being more of a research school, which is, I mean, that is not a bad thing, but we should also get involved in more practical contests like these. I mean, we are a great school, no doubt, in engineering, that we should show that to, like, the rest of the planet. Yeah.
I think our education doesn't really structure in activities and projects, and I think that's okay. It's the student's job to seek out and find these projects that excite us and that that we're interested in specifically. And, uh, you know, we found this, and I was glad to have found it. It was uh, kind of a a strain for a little while. I mean, obviously, an eight-hour day, you got to build a robot that works and competes against another robot that another team is building, and these guys are just as well educated as we are, so... You know, it was a little bit of a drain, and I don't know if I'd really necessarily do this again. It was a great experience, but um, I'm always seeking out projects and trying to find fun things to do with, uh, you know, my education. So. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, I, I think it's very important that you find something that you're very interested and passionate about. And uh, I guess for us, it's robotics, but in general, it's always a good idea to seek out what you're interested in. I, I think it's a great sentiment. Well, I think with that, uh, we're definitely a little out of time, but I just want to thank you all for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thank you. Thanks. Our pleasure. And we were just talking with Berkeley Robot Builders Eric Park, Daniel Lerbaum, and Bharat Muthuswamy about their upcoming appearance on Robot Rivals, which airs on the DIY Network. You can see them take on the University of Tennessee on May 9th, so tune in for that. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what gives a firecracker its spark, so stay tuned. She's a black belt in karate Working for the city She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that Back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what gives a firecracker its bang? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. 
Did you ever wonder what gives a firecracker its bang? The answer can be found in everyday science. To learn why firecrackers explode, let's go inside one of the simplest firecrackers out there, a black cat. Right now, we're in a tiny paper tube. See that piece of string? That's the fuse. And all that gray-black sand filling this tube is gunpowder, a chemical explosive that's been around for a thousand or so years and is made out of a mixture of charcoal, sulfur, and saltpeter. Now, all chemical explosives are made up of a fuel, which is the part that burns, and an oxidizer, which provides oxygen so the firecracker can burn. With gunpowder, charcoal is the fuel, and saltpeter is the oxidizer. Sounds like we're about to learn firsthand how it all works. Better hold on. As the flame travels down the length of the fuse, it eventually reaches the gunpowder and sets it aflame. The gunpowder's charcoal uses the concentrated oxygen from the saltpeter, which makes it burn really fast. As the gunpowder burns, gases are released. As they're released, those gases expand rapidly, becoming almost 400 times bigger than they were before. That expansion creates a shock wave, which we hear as... Hope you got a bang out of learning how firecrackers make noise. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Another explosive report from Everyday Science Lady. Oh. You gonna let her light your fuse? <laughs> she could light my fuse any day, and oh man, would I get a bang out of that. <laughs> she would get a bang out of that too. We'd all get a bang out of that. Yes, and there'll be an afterglow too. <laughs> Don't forget the, that. The afterglow of the Big Bang. You know, everyday science lady, where are you? And now the answer to last week's question of the week. Why are tigers more seriously endangered than the average endangered species? Well, the reason is that tigers apparently at some point in the past were close to extinction before, and therefore there were very few tigers left, meaning that the current genetic diversity of tigers is extremely low. Most tigers seem to be very closely related to one another, making them much more susceptible to disease and so on, making them even more endangered than they might otherwise be. So that's one more animal I can't have for a barbecue, huh? Yeah, no tiger sticks for you. Okay, and now here is a Tokyo Kid with this week's uh, question of the week. Do we need oxygen to have life? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You may not win anything, but you might breathe a little easier. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.